At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we are going to be opening God's Word, and we are going to be diving back into the book of Revelation. I say back into because we have spent, as a church family, uh, some time this last year studying the last book of the New Testament. Uh, So far this year, we have seen that the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have seen in this study that Jesus is the Lord of the church and that he is the Lord of heaven and he is the Lord of the earth. And now over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is also the Lord of the new heaven and the new earth. It is where everything is headed. And we're going to be looking at those verses together in August and September and the beginning of October. So excited that you're here today and excited that we can launch into this sermon series together. Today, we're going to be in the first part of that series as we look at Revelation 19, 1 through 10. Now, when I think of these verses and getting ready to launch into this study, I was talking with uh, some of our staff today, and we were talking about, would this be a challenge? Would it be a challenge for us to, to dive into Revelation 19 right here in the beginning of the fall? Because sometimes we don't think of the book of Revelation as a book that is something that is either accessible or interesting to us in some ways. It's just this big, giant question mark. But friends, I believe that each of us who are here today have an insatiable curiosity about these events. The things that are described in the last four pages of our Bibles, Revelation 19 through 22 is four pages in my Bible. These are the last four pages in our scripture. And in these four pages, we have so many important things addressed, things that we are absolutely interested in. Things like, Will evil really be done away with and judged? What is the future for those who have trusted in Christ? Where will we spend eternity? These big, massive questions are on display and answered for us in these chapters. And I'm really excited for us to be diving into them together. It's interesting, this summer we went to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. It's an amazing place, but they had one exhibit in that museum where the Version Bible was in an interactive display where you could see what the half a billion users of the Version Bible, what they were searching for at any given time. And what we saw was the third most searched keyword in the world was apocalypse. Now, why is that? And you're going to answer because it's 2022. (laughs) That's why. And I understand. But it's because we have an interest in seeing how the tension that we live in will ultimately be resolved. And over the next nine Sundays, we're going to unpack this in these verses together. So that's where we're headed today. We'll be in part one of this series, looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, take it out and turn there. We're going to spend the balance of our time in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations today. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud, cra- the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, friends, these 10 verses reveal for us two important truths for us to remember and to grab onto today. So what are the two truths we need to see in these verses? Well, the first one we need to see is this. We are to worship and obey who lasts. We are to worship and obey who lasts. We are not to organize our lives around that which is fleeting, but we are to worship and obey the one who will last for all eternity. And we see this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Now, as we begin to unpack this, it's important for us to remember the geography of this moment. Where are we in the universe? Because Revelation has had a number of different settings. The first chapter began on earth as John has this vision of Jesus on the earth. And then in the second and third chapter of Revelation, Jesus was dictating letters to be delivered to churches on the earth in chapters 2 and 3. And then in chapters 4 and 5, the geography changes and we get a tour of heaven so that we see what is happening in heaven right now at this very moment. And then in chapter 6 through 18, we see the action bouncing from heaven to earth, from heaven to earth, from heaven to earth, as judgment is prepared to come upon the earth as Jesus exhibits his sovereignty as he judges the earth in preparation for his return. But when we get to chapter 19, specifically in the first 10 verses, the verses we just read, we are back in heaven. And that's something we see as demonstrated in these verses. Now, when we see this picture of heaven, what is happening there? What's going on in heaven? Right now at this moment, what is happening? And before we look at it in more detail, I want to describe it in a picture that you might understand. You know, as a pastor, I I have the privilege of being a part of a number of weddings. Several of you in this room, I had the privilege of officiating your wedding. And as an officiant of a wedding, I have a very unique opportunity. I'm able to see a lot of different things happen. 
I bounce from room to room. I can go into the the bridal suite or the parlor where the bride is prepared and awaiting her entry. And I get to pray with them and see them. And then I get to go into the foyer and I see the groom and his friends who are waiting to enter the room. And then I get to stick my head in and see how the the chapel looks. and, And I get to see the guests who have gathered. So I get a unique role to see all three of those things happen in the moments before it all goes down. Now, What I can tell you is, though those are three different environments, in all spots, there's a lot of excitement. There's just a lot of anticipation. Everybody has gathered to celebrate something big that is getting ready to happen. And what we see in Revelation chapter 19, the first 10 verses, is a look into really the the, the bridal suite of heaven as we see in the anticipation and the excitement about what is getting ready to go down. Now, why do we know that there is some excitement? Because of the words that are used. In these first few verses, we see the word hallelujah appear four times. Now, the word hallelujah, that's a, that's a Bible word, right? That's a word that we would expect to see in the Bible. But do you realize that the word hallelujah only appears in the New Testament four times? Where does this word appear in the New Testament four times? One, two, three, four. Now, it's a little misleading to say that because the word hallelujah is actually a Hebrew word, not a Greek word, and the New Testament is written in Greek. But on this occasion, the Hebrew word hallelujah is transliterated, given Greek letters, and is transcribed here to describe something very specific. You see, when we talk about worship, worship can happen simply in any way that we bow our hearts before God, any way that we bow ourselves low and lift him high to declare his worth. But when it comes to this phrase hallelujah, it means something very specific. Hallelujah literally means to praise God. It is not something that has a general sense of meaning, but it's something that means a very particular activity, and that is the vocal expression of praise and gratitude to God. In order for this to be a hallelujah, it must come out of our mouths, past our lips, and into the world as we proclaim to an audience of some sort who we see as the most worthy of all. Friends, in heaven right now, They are so excited about what is getting ready to happen that they cannot keep their mouths shut. And even as we gather here today, that that we might be inspired by what is getting ready to happen, that we might not be able to keep our mouths shut as well. Why do we put words on the screen and play music and, and sing for an extended period of time at the beginning and the end of our services? It is because there is someone so worthy to be celebrated that we cannot keep our mouths shut We must proclaim hallelujah. Now, this hallelujah that is being proclaimed in heaven is focusing on the God who sits sovereign over all and the God who is described as the one that salvation and glory and power belong to him and his judgments are true and just. There is a celebration of God in heaven right now. And this celebration of God in heaven right now is is being led by all of the population of heaven. It's not like there's a pocket of heaven that is silent. You know, sometimes when we sing, there are those who sing and there's those who don't sing. But in heaven right now, no one's quiet. 
The whole multitude is praising God and declaring his worth and greatness. They cannot keep their mouths shut. Who does the multitude include? It includes the 24 elders, which we have seen earlier in our study of Revelation is a picture of the church, those that have gone before us and are present in heaven right now, having already lived and run their earthly race. And also the four living creatures, those angelic beings that are representative of the angelic order in heaven and even of all of the created order. The full multitude, the full population of heaven cannot keep their mouths shut, but they are proclaiming glory and praise to God. Now, what is it that God is doing that would elicit this praise? Well, the thing that he is doing is that he is judging or has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now, what is this a reference to? Well, in this picture, in this context, going back to Revelation 17 and 18, the the prostitute is a picture of the world's system. See, the, the systems and the ideas, the best this world has to offer, has not been a blessing to this world, but has actually served as a corruption to this world. It has led to not the the life of the world, but to the death of the world and ultimately to the judgment of the world. Not only has it led to the corruption of individuals, but it's also led those corrupt individuals to even lash out and kill the followers of Jesus Christ in the persecution of the church, something that has been going on for 2,000 years but even extends before that in the persecution of the prophets in the Old Testament era. And so there has been a system in this world that has inspired and corrupted people to a life of death and of destruction and of the persecution of the followers of God. And you you might have spent some time watching the news at some point in the last few years and thought, oh Lord, how much longer? If you really sit sovereign over this place, will you not come and judge this system of destruction? Why do you allow it to tarry? When Revelation 19, we're reminded that there is a moment coming when Jesus will judge the systems of this world and he will bring them to ruin. There is no future in them. There is no life in them. And when the judgment of God comes, It's not a temporary judgment, but it's a judgment that will go on forever and ever and ever. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. When Jesus comes and judges the earth, he's going to to put an out-of-business sign and permanently affix it to the world system so that we know there is no future in this. And God in his grace, God in his mercy has given us this picture of where all this is headed so that we might not be attracted to the lure of this world, but that we might follow him instead. Because this is not just something that those who are in heaven are called to recognize, but this is something that all of us must recognize, even those of us currently here living upon the earth. Verse 5 makes it clear. A voice comes from the throne. Praise our God, who? All you, his servants, who fear him, small and great. 
even those of us right here in Norman, Oklahoma. We are to, to praise God in light of the fact that he is coming to judge the earth, that he is coming to judge the systems of the earth and to put them out of business forever and ever and ever. Friends, the things of this world are temporary. They're temporary. But there is one who will reign forever and ever. May we not be attracted to that which is corrupted, but may we instead worship and obey and organize our lives around the one who will last. I love what Jim Hamilton says in his commentary on Revelation about this. He says, evil, injustice, immorality, and idolatry will only result in regret. If you do not repent and trust in Christ, your regret will last forever. We want these images of God's justice to be sealed to our hearts so that when sin tempts us, we see smoke rising from the ruins of Babylon. Why the the vivid picture? Why describe the world system as a prostitute and corruption and persecution? Why talk about a fire that goes up forever and ever? It is so that we don't forget it, so that we might remember where this world is headed. And so that we might be encouraged that though there is such a thing as alcoholism and addiction today, those things will one day burn in a fire forever and ever. So that though one, this day in which we live is full of, of crime and is full of corruption, one day that will burn forever and ever. Though this world we live in has corrupt governments that are not taking care of their people, one day those world systems will burn forever and ever. Though there are so many things that tempt us and allure to us like a moth to a flame, we might remember that it is a flame that will never extinguish so that we might not answer its siren's call but we might move in an alternate direction. Friends, right now, there are so many things that are wanting to tempt us. They look good to us. There there are things like sexual temptation or pornography, sexual expression outside of between a husband and a wife. God has given us this picture so that we know those temptations do not lead to life. They lead to death. We've been given these pictures so that we would know that though gossip may seem like it is something we want to participate in for a while, it it ultimately will be burned up and be smoked forever. When we think about the the things like our, our greed and our attraction to things, and we're reminded that one day it will all burn, that we might be liberated from the allure and the appeal of this world to the things that will not last. Friends, Jesus has painted this picture so that we might worship, obey, and organize our lives around the one who will last. We see that in the first five verses of chapter 19. But this chapter continues, and it continues in a beautiful, beautiful way into a second point. Not only are we called to worship and obey the one who lasts, but also we are to celebrate our connection with our king. If chapter one is a cautionary tale, or or first five verses are a cautionary tale, from verse six through verse 10, we get a celebration that ought to stir each of our hearts. Now, what is that celebration? Well, it takes us to a picture and a reminder of our Lord, the King. 
It says in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, friends, who is it that reigns? I mean, even beyond this passage, who is it that is reigning? Kings reign. It's, it's, it's language of, of kingship. Kings reign. And so by this declaration that the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, it's a declaration that Jesus is the King of kings who is reigning over this world. You know, earlier I talked about the, the summary of the entire book of Revelation and all these different series that we have gone through. And we talked about Jesus being the Lord of the church and the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. But we could just as easily have called those series the King of the church, the King of heaven, and the King of earth. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Almighty. He is the one who reigns over all. And friends, we need to remember that because we live in a time and an age that wants to make Jesus just another guy, maybe an important guy, maybe a a, a historical figure, but just another person. We, in our effort to, to personalize Jesus, we have brought him down and forgotten who he really is. At his core, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. Yes, he has made himself accessible to us, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But he has not made himself accessible to us while stepping away from his identity as the King of kings. He sits high and exalted above all. When we pray or when we sing, we are addressing the King. When we gather and we worship, we are worshiping the king. When we obey in our daily lives, we are obeying the king. When we read our scripture, we are reading the words of the king. We're talking about the king of kings here. And guess what? The king of kings is getting married. That's what the passage tells us. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Now, when we hear that the king is getting married, we're we're tempted to just mesh it completely with our experience and and think that this is indicating that Jesus is, you know, finally he's kind of lived his life. Now he's going to settle down. You know, he's going to get a place and, you know, no, 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 that's not what this has in mind. But of all of the pictures and all of the analogies that God could use, and he could have used any one, he uses the analogy of marriage. Why? Because it speaks of the close, personal, committed interaction that Jesus will have with his people ever. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is committing himself to his bride. What an amazing picture that we see beginning to unfold here in the marriage of the Lamb. In this royal wedding... You know, we, we love royal weddings in our world, right? Somebody gets married in the royal family in England, and it's a, a television event lasting multiple days. We're fascinated by royal weddings. But what we see in Revelation 19 is that there's a, a royal wedding to end all royal weddings. The union of the Son of God, the King of Kings, and his bride. So the question we need to ask is, well, who is his bride? Who is the bride of Christ? And the answer to that is his church. It's his church. And we know that 
not just because we hope that that's true, and we know that not just because we think the context of Revelation 19 points in that direction, though I believe it does, but we also know that because of what the rest of the New Testament teaches about this concept in places like Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul writes maybe the most famous section in the New Testament about marriage. He talks about things like, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It is a a marriage passage. But in the midst of that passage, there also is this, this big indicator about what our earthly marriages are to to follow after. There's an example that has been set, and that is the example of the commitment that Jesus has with his church. So that when Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 concludes, it, it says, this mystery pictured in marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So who is the bride of Christ? The bride of Christ is the body of Christ. It is the church. It is you and I. If we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, then we are fit for a king, prepared for a wedding day. Now, this bride has been prepared for the wedding. It says, the bride has made herself ready, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, when we see that, we might begin to get nervous. Wait a minute. We're supposed to to be prepared with this, this perfect life so that Jesus might receive us? I mean, what happens if we've got some stains on our garments because we have sinned and various things have happened in our lives? Well, again, let's go back and look at how those garments are cleansed in our example from Ephesians chapter 5. I love what it says in Ephesians 5. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We're wrinkled and we're stained. But Jesus came and died on the cross so that our garments might be cleansed and so that we might be pressed straight, so that we might be prepared for the king when he comes. Jesus is not only committed to us, but he has cleansed us as well. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous life of Christ, clothing us and preparing us for that day. But it's interesting. You know, it's this royal wedding is talked about here. The bride has made herself ready. And in in some way, the righteous deeds of the saints, the righteous deeds of the body of Christ are, are mentioned. And I think what this is saying is though Christ has cleaned us up and prepared us, that part of remaining prepared is for the body of Christ to live in light of that cleansing. This is what I think is talked about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 when it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
What does it mean to be prepared for the second coming of Christ, to be prepared for that wedding day? It's to trust in him, be cleansed by him, but then live in light of that cleansing, being faithful to our beloved. Now, this picture of a royal wedding gains even greater clarity when we think about not our weddings from our day, but the weddings from the first century. In the first century, a Jewish wedding would go something like this. The first part of the wedding would be the bride would be selected. This, this happened at some point in the past where there would be a, a man and a woman. It might have been arranged by their family, but they were united and say, these two are going to be married one day. Remember, Mary and Joseph had that period of betrothal, committed to one another, though living separately. Then the second part, the groom will leave his house, will go to the house of the bride, will collect her to himself. They will become married at that point. And then the third part happens where they will return to their home location for some kind of a multi-day party. Remember when Jesus turned the water into wine and in the gospel of John? That was a part of this multi-day party. You think your wedding reception was great? These wedding receptions went a week, right? This was the picture of the first century Jewish wedding. Now, let's use this as a template to think about this marriage between Christ and his church. When we think of the first part, we were selected by him, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He graciously reached out to us, died on the cross for our sins, gave us the faith to be able to embrace that gift so that we might be forgiven and we might be expectant of one day being united with him forever in eternity. Second thing that happens is the groom goes to get his bride. For some of us, it will be our lives and our earthly lives ultimately ending and us going to heaven. For others who are alive at the time of the end, Jesus will appear in the clouds and will gather together his church in an event known as the rapture. But it pictures this second part of the wedding where the two are united together forever. And then the third phase is the party the multi-day party that comes forward. And when we look at the book of Revelation, what we see is that when the church is united with the Savior, they will come to the earth for the establishment of a kingdom that will go on for many days. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. And will be an expression of the celebration of the union of our God with his people and the righteous rule the blessing that comes to all who are around. This is why the angel says in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, the bride and the groom are going to be together in any who are on the earth during that time of that union will be blessed to see that connection. And the angels of heaven even will long to see it and will celebrate that union as Christ and his church are living in his kingdom forevermore. What exactly does that look like? What does that mean? We got to come back because we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. But it's a beautiful picture and a reminder of God's commitment to us. So a few applicational points. First applicational point that I would have us consider is this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You know who you are? You're a royal. If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are the bride of the King of Kings. 
not because you have lived a better life than anyone else, but because of the grace of our God and his initiation and commitment to you. When we think of that, we, we ought to, it, it, adds, it adds dignity and value and honor to our lives. We are royals. Those around you are royals. We gather today as a collection of royals awaiting the union with our groom. And while we wait, may we live in light of who we are. May we stay faithful to our beloved. Living a life reflecting who he is and our connection to him. And the last thing I would mention is just to encourage you that there is hope in Christ. You know, if you're here today and you think, wow, I I don't feel cleansed. Well, it's possible that you have some false guilt because you have trusted in Christ and he has forgiven you, but you have forgotten that. But it's also possible that the guilt that you feel is real because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you have not yet come to Christ for him to provide your cleansing. And if that's the case, know that there is hope for all, no matter what you have done. There is hope in Christ. Come to him and have him cleanse you and press you straight and prepare you for a life lived in his presence in relationship with him forever and ever. The, the, the marriages in this world may be good, may be bad, may be absent. That, that is, describes all of our marriage relationships in one of those capacities. But there is a marriage with one who will always provide that is available to all who would trust in him. May we today find our hope and our life in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for just this incredible passage. Great encouragement today. We pray that you would guide us as a group of people today to really find our our hope and our life in you. That we would live in light of that identity, following you to your glory and honor. Thank you for your commitment to us. And we pray, just not able to keep our mouths shut in response, singing hallelujah to you, joining the heavenly chorus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.